Hello, good afternoon, good evening around the world. Each and every week we come to your TV sets. Let's see TV because these phones and these laptops and these iPads have become nightly TV now. And I've been blessed to have a way to come to you right from my camera, from my studio, and bring some great talent and stories that we have not been able to document before. But thanks to the freedom of expression and, and this show, we've been able to get some incredible stories. But before I start the trust stories, you know how many of you know me. And I always talk about, we've done Paradise Garage shows before, like stuff about the garage and the dancers and things like that. So today I'm blessed to say after some conversations with this man and I revere him as a true legend himself he agreed to come on it wasn't easy for him because there's to, to, when you don't do this technology you have to learn quickly how to step up and get everything going and I got to give him a hell of a lot of credit he got it operational as he learned from the best wizard themselves to have to work or as they say fake it till you make it that's part of the Broadway way right Heard that from record promoters, DJs, artists, you name it. Fake it till you make it, right? So is everybody getting comfortable now? Here we go. Welcome to True House Stories. I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And this week, we're staying homegrown Manhattan. Long Island City, Uptown Manhattan, you name it. Every so often in life, there's game changers. Or more or less, a person takes two sticks and creates fire, right? Well, the man we're going to talk to in a moment is going to explain to us how and what he did at the time revolutionized and benchmarked the nightclub scene and everything after. Imagine Nothing sound like this pre to what came from this one man. And his name was Richard Long from RLA. He is no longer with us, so don't ask me if I could find him because he's been gone since 1986. May he rest in peace. But his designs, his wizardry is still going ever so strong in present day. As his drawings are still being produced. What I mean is his speaker boxes, parts of his sound system, the idea of a crossover, an isolator, um, how you tune a room. You know, these are things that this man created and helped. Well, I shouldn't say created, but he made them work at a different level that changed the world as we knew it after. So when you got to hear a system like at the Paris Garage or Roxy, Studio 54, or any of those big rooms at the time, and you were used to going to a small bar, what sounded like AM radio now was actually Technicolor. This man, Robert Coleman, who I'll bring up in one moment, sat there for a good 15, 16 years with him. 
And off camera, I got a chance to speak to him about what was taught to him. And he explained it like this. He said, it's called this and that. Which means if we got a drywall now, put sheetrock up, I have to learn I got to get that done. If I got to wire speaker boxes and start soldering, and we need to get that done to get this job done. If I got to get up on a ladder and hang those speakers in those big clubs, whatever had to be done was done. If I had to deal with the clients myself and the drama, because with every creative person I've always learned comes craziness. You know, it's like the science. They're just so damn smart. But yet some other things lack. <laughs> like the simple stuff of dealing with the day-to-day -day stuff of having to give someone an answer or having to massage it. They're like, ah, F that. They'll get it when they get it. I don't care. You know, and it, we got deadlines. We got, you know, and and what's unfortunate is where Robert's sitting at a desk and a phone's ringing from a club owner. It could be a mafioso person saying, where the hell's my shit? Or it could be some other club owner saying, if you bitches don't get your asses down here now, I ain't cutting you no check. You know, and Richard's in the back, just tell him anything. We need to get it done. Don't worry about it. We'll get it done. And one other thing I will say before I bring him on. Alex Raza said it correct. If I would have been in studio to do studio sound system, I would have been the famous one. But because Richard and I didn't work out, Richard's system went in there and the rest is history. And not to say Alex Rosner is not a genius, because Rosner Custom Sound did many sound systems from Nikki Siano's gallery, Max's Kansas City. That was the sound name, Rosner Custom Sound. But when RLA came on board, it's like push the curtain aside. Game changing. I'm going to leave it like that. Game changing. I'd like to welcome from Manhattan, New York, Mr. Robert Coleman to True House Stories. Glad to be here. We love you, Robert. You know it. Yeah. Robert, why don't you tell everybody how you're doing? Because you haven't been on camera in a long time. And, you know, some people saw you in the Joselle Ramos film that was the Larry LeVan thing. And, yeah. They were always wondering if you were okay. And I know you pop in and out on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Let everybody know how you're doing. Because you've been through a mill and back. Well, it's been a trip and a struggle. Um, funny thing is that I was thinking about how you mentioned about Richard and Alex. Alex was very much into pure sound. He wanted it to be as close, as live as possible. Richard, on the other hand, went off with doing bass and sub-bass, which will fill a room and you, you, you can't help but to vibrate with the sound. You get up, you start dancing, and it, it takes you over. But um, it was all an amazing journey. Oh, I bet. I know it was. 
you know. Because you guys were creating fire. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Richard was like a volcano. There was nothing else like it pre to, to that Richard sound. There was nothing yeah. like that. I no. mean, Rosner, yes, you had other sound companies yeah. doing yeah. their thing, but Rosner was the benchmark at that time through the early 70s into the mid 70s. But also, Rosner, I don't think, did anything on the size that Richard was doing. Because Richard got into doing large rooms where Rosner was doing a smaller stuff like the, the gallery and stuff like that. They're smaller rooms, so it's easier to, you know, address. But uh, large sounds are very difficult because you have to worry about acoustical treatment. You have to worry about the space and, and to fill up every cranny of the space. And Richard described it to me like this. If you were walking down a long corridor and you have lights in the ceiling, your lights, the flow of the lights have to overlap each other for it to be equally good. And Richard always made sure that all of the sound in the room is equal. And he would always uh, analyze it with his spectrum analyzer, which made it very much on the level of correctness. Um, but Richard was like a father to me. He taught me everything. He taught me how to work. He taught me how to solder. He taught me how to drive. He taught me how to do this. He does plumbing. He did, you know, he was a mastermind and he was good at everything he did. Um, he even made a pair of pants once, which was amazing. And just pick up something and everything was technically correct. It wasn't like slap slapstick and bubble gum. And everything was in code and, and, and correct. Well, that's what makes him who he is, I guess, a true wizard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was amazing. And I never seen anybody to be so well equipped. No. But I'm going to ask you before you get into Richard's story, so we have a little background knowledge of you. No. Free to Richard and you learning about RLA, what's your involvement and what were you doing in your life at that time before <laughs> you got you got into the craziness of the disco sound and all well, that? Well, it's funny. I went to school and in high school, I went to Fashion Industries, which is the high school for fashion design. Mm -hmm. I took up fashion because my brother, who was 18 months older than I was, he went to art and design. And my brother was going to school with Frankie Knuckles. And Frankie Knuckles actually stayed with us for a few months because his mom kicked him out of the house for him being gay. So Frankie was here and we had what is now called a house. All of our friends would come by after school and we'd have parties, not parties, but we'd hang out and have fun and do different things and whatnot. So when I started going out, my brother brought me to this club called 
Bosco's. Bosco's was on 116th Street and Madison Avenue. Now, very few people would venture into that neighborhood at night. Anyway, I was sitting there and I was underage. So my brother kept insisting, keep smoking cigarettes, keep smoking cigarettes. So I'm sitting there in a cloud of smoke and Richard, Richard, my brother brought Richard over and introduced us. And I'm like, well, what is this white man doing in the middle of Harlem with a bunch of black people? But anyway, it turned out that he worked on their sound system so they would have a good, a decent quality sound system. And their music was coming from a jukebox. But it was the first time I ever heard stereo. Because back then in the, 70, the 60s, as a matter of fact, you know, you didn't hear stereo very often. No, so, because radio, radio was AM, and a lot of people carry transistor radios, which was yeah, not. Yeah, you know, from Japan. I remember everything, with, uh, everything, uh, everything electronic, technical transistors were all coming from Japan. So anyway, um, I didn't think that anything would develop from Richard and I. But Richard had once told me at, at that night, he had invited me to his house, which I went. And, you know, we had a very nice evening. And he was telling me about what he does. But as I was sitting there, I was looking around and I couldn't believe it because it was like I was sitting in something from Architectural Digest. And this is something that he put together. It was a, a three-story building on St. Mark's Place, 79 St. Mark's. Oh, Rainier Electric Circus. Wow. Over yeah. There. And he owned, he, he co-owned it with some other people in the building. So he had the garden floor. So this white person had had coins. Yeah. Well, I don't know where his money was coming from, but there was money there. <laughs> when you, you have know, an apartment like that on a brownstone, you got some coins in the city. The thing is that he put it together himself. Okay. You know, he built everything. He built arch walls and built. Uh, he had a grand piano in his, his living room. He had stereo system and he had Bose, uh, not Bose, he had Bose speakers in the living room, which I never seen Bose before. And he had a backyard. He built a water fountain with the water that shot up three stories. Um, wow. And you know, all of this stuff he built and created. So I was very much interested in him, but we didn't really connect that much at that point. But on and on, running into him, you know, we got closer and closer. And then when he moved to 452 Broadway, it was like a shell of a loft. And he was building his home, his office, his workshops, 
and a disco all in one. He had table saws, which he had on wheels. He would roll it off the floor and put it under the disco booth. He would have tools galore. Whatever tool you needed, he had. Um, and that's where he built his speakers and the work that he did with his uh, electronic components and stuff like that. I mean, it was fully equipped. It was like something out of high-end luxury. The kitchen alone had a dishwasher, washing machine and dryer, two-door refrigerator, uh, stove put over a four-burner range, a double-door oven, a garbage disposal, a food disposal, uh, uh, espresso machine, a popcorn machine, and it was just, and he had cabinets with, he had like these showroom cabinets with uh, uh, copper pots and, and all kind of stuff. Can I stop? Unbelievable. Can I can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Man, David Mancuso did the same, starting his loft parties in '69, '70. Well, you say. know, this is something. Uh, David Mancuso. I believe got his idea from the club Bosco's. Because oh, really? Richard brought David Mancuso to Bosco's. And Bosco's. That's what I wanted to find out. Richard and David had. Yeah, they were sort of connected. And the first time I met David, Richard was doing some sound work for David. And he brought me with him to David's place. And David let me sit there and play records. And so I was sitting there playing records and I was like, oh boy, look at all of this equipment. And, you know, I was so amazed that he would let me do that. But um, David was a very cool person. At the time when David was starting the loft, I remember Alex Raza mentioning that he had helped put the clip system in and did the bullet, uh, the tweeters arrays and stuff. Most of the system was put in by Alex Rosner. Right. Was Richard working along Alex at that time? Actually, it was right after the end of Rosner, Richard and Rosner. It was right when Richard stopped working for Rosner. It was like when Richard. That's how I want people to know that that Richard Long worked for Dave, for Alex Rosner. Uh, Rosner, yes. You got that, everyone, right? Uh, he was working for Alex Rosner up until they did um, Les Jardins. Uh, that was done with, um, oh, what's his name? John Addison. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, because that's where Bobby DJ got the Doro plate in Michael Capello. Okay, yeah. John Addison's club, yes. Yep. And I worked for John Addison, too. Uh, John Addison did the Ice Palace, which was a professional hockey ring in this business building on 11th, uh, 10th Avenue. It was up on, I think, the 11th floor. I don't remember, but it was up high, and it was where the New York Rangers would practice. And... Uh, Alex Rosner, Alex Rosner, 
John had put a dance floor in the middle of the ice skating rink and had a bridge that goes over to the dance floor. And so I was there one night and I was skating around and I was having fun. You know, Richard had did the sound system, so I came as a guest. But then Richard asked Alan, do you need help? And he recommended me. And so Alex, uh, I keep saying Alex, John Addison said, yes, I could use him. So he had hired me. And, you know, between him and Faye, they were a, a routine. Yeah. So that's got to be around 75-ish, 76, around that time. Around 75. Four or five-ish. Yeah, it's because that's when Ice Palace was open. Yeah, yeah. And also Le Jardin was around that time too, 74, 75. Yeah, I think Le Jardin was actually before 74. Well, I'm saying with the Richard Club Soho was opened at 74. Let me show let me show everybody. Okay, so I have a I have one picture we found that Robert had put up. I grabbed it a while ago. That was yeah. Soho's dance floor. Now that was Richard's workroom, his living room, his dance floor. And if you can see at the back where that star is pointing to the back, lower is a water fountain up on the ceiling. <laughs> I mean, and then he had a carpet on the wall to absorb sound. He had air conditioning and he put that place together like that by himself. But Joe put the uh, star in. But uh, that was held. So, so when the young Larry Levan was at yeah. Continental Bats, his, fir his first after Continental Bats, he gets the job at? Soho Place. Larry Levan spinning at Soho Place. Soho Place. Which is owned by? The, the award-winning Richard, Richard Long on the sound system. Yep. Okay. That was the DJ booth. The Thorns turntable. That's, that's where underneath, that's where he put his big table saws and stuff, you know, all his tools for the dance floor. Under the booth? Under the booth. Wow. So basically during the day, it's a workshop. Yes. For making speaker boxes, speaker boxes, and building then, a sound system, the whole deal. Yeah. But, but at night, up at the end of that loft space, you had a second floor, which had a bedroom and uh, electronic shop. And we were putting together electronic equipment like his uh, crossovers, and he had did mixes at one point. But the mixes didn't work out too well. But crossovers were like became it. It started the whole thing of people using crossovers. To your memory of the Soho place, mm -hmm. since it's the first his his first professional club he's doing. Yeah. Did you guys have birthdays in that room? Was there anything like that? Mm, that was before the birthers, but he had what he was doing at that point, which he 
totally disagreed with at first. He was using GLI speakers, who I was also working with too. GLI speakers? GLI. Wow. Because they were doing live speakers, and Richard was in cahoots with GLI, so they furnished speakers for Richard. And um, it turned out that what totally turned Richard off with GLI, because it was an error that happened, um, I don't know if you remember uh, Enchanted Gardens. Yes, that's in Queens, in Douglaston Manor. Yes. yes. They put GLI, Richard put GLI speakers in there. And one night, the speakers caught a fire for some reason. You know, and everybody had to leave the club and stuff, and the fire department came and whatnot. So at that point, Richard said, now I'm going to start building my own speakers. Oh, I see. So I see. So he was contracting from GLI the boxes and then installing them and, and then setting up yeah, the system. Yeah. 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 But and, let me show you. go ahead. And the thing is that Enchanted Gardens was one of the owners was Steve Rebell. That's right. Now, wait a minute. Steve Rebell was hired in my junior high school. And I, every time I was in the gym, he would come by and start cruising the kids, but he would do it secretly. He's just walking around, you know, looking, just to be looking. And I was like, who is this queen? <laughs> but lo and behold, I confirmed it with the dean of the school that it was him that was working there. And when I confronted him at Studio 54, he said, no, I don't know you. No, but I, I I could understand him saying that for two reasons. One is that he didn't want to be identified with the school for some reason, and the fact that he had no reason to want to be identified with me. You know, because who am I? Right. But it was so ironic that it would happen that way. Let me show. Hang on, I got to show everybody a picture of Steve Bell. <laughs> I have a picture of Richie Kays on Steve Bell. Yeah, yeah. That's Steve next to Richie in the booth, everyone. Yep. Okay. So what Robert's talking about is Miss Rebel would be shopping. Ah. Strolling around shopping, looking for young trade. At the garage. Yes, they hold the high school gym. Well, that's what's making me wonder a little about Richard, why he would have been up at Bosco's at night. Uh, well, uh, you know, I I really don't like spilling the beans on Richard, but do you have any questions? <laughs> I have knowledge. I don't want to say too much over this. Yeah, I didn't either. Because I got to be careful. Let's just yeah. say this. I do know that Richard was very drawn to Latino boys, if I remember correctly. Actually, he was more drawn to black boys. Well, black and Latino, but I, I or yeah. is that Mel? Mel was, <laughs> sorry, I forgot. Well, you know, the thing is that Richard carried himself where you wouldn't even suspect that he was gay because he, he, he had such a straight persona. 
and he had to hold on to that because it didn't do well. Vaporphone. And why? And yeah. why at that time? Explain that reason because that's a different era than now. People don't yeah. know. That. Yeah. Why was he so closeted about it? Why was he? Because in the world of disco, even though it was prevalent, even amongst the straight clubs, club owners didn't want to have anything to do with gay people. And other club uh, sound system people didn't want to have anything to do with gay people. It was like everybody was either in the closet or they just were disliked and they were afraid Richard was afraid that if it was out that he was gay that everybody would talk against him and he would lose a lot of business so in his club they having Larry Levan which I heard later on years later it was a fabulous club okay mm -hmm. he controlled his own world basically he could be he could be who he wants to be, and nobody would, can cast any stone. Yeah, but even while he was amongst his own, if you want to say it that way, okay, he was still very straight or stoic. You know, you couldn't really tell. You know, you hear what's going on, but you don't see it. <laughs> you know, and if Richard, if, if Richard, if Richard doesn't know and like you. He remains closeted. And he's mm. very to himself. He's very shy. He doesn't want to, you know, be involved with company and lots of people and stuff like that. And Richard was a workhorse. He spent all his time working. Even when he's doing pleasurable things like going to dinner or going to a movie or whatever, his mind is ticking away at, you know, the next invention or the next design or the next club you know hmm. interesting so you get unless you lived and worked with him you wouldn't know that you know no, you wouldn't and you, only if you heard it you know and it wasn't like it was a secret secret but you know it wasn't really talked about much <laughs> I know because I have some friends that would say to me, he lure you in with white powder. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to shame him because he's not here. But they did that. You know, drugs were prevalent back then, made things very relaxed, made people do things maybe they didn't want to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not going to take away the greatness of what he created, and I'm not going to try to slander his 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 fame. But, you know... That is how things were in the nightclubs environment. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. You know, nobody wants to really mention those things, but you heard, you know, in the she she quietness, you heard such and such said, "Oh, he has plenty of that white powder." Oh please, oh please. That's like, what you would hear, and you say, "Oh wow!" And if you're into that stuff, yeah, yeah, you're gonna go where it is, and you're gonna party, yeah. and you know. May he rest in peace, Mel Sharon. Let me show his picture. I'm going to bring this up for a minute. You know, Mel Sharon, part of Michael Brody's lover at the time when the garage was starting. Everybody heard the stories and this and that. West End Records. Mm -hmm. You know, even Mel Sharon in his book wrote about his escapades and how how he was very, you know, when yeah. when the sexual thing changed 
and the, and the doors opened, you know, it was like, Hey, I'm here now I'm coming yeah. out and I'm letting everybody know. And he wrote about it. Yeah. So yeah. back then, back then you would never say any of this stuff. This stuff was kept, as they say, what stays in Vegas of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Same thing with yeah. these clubs. What happened in studio or the garage or any of those clubs, you know, at the but, time. You know, the they, main thing about the white powder is that it was used as a stimulant to keep people awake, alert, and active. You know, that's the one reason. But, I mean, then it went beyond that. People got into enjoying it and, and using it the wrong way and, and da 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 and the worst thing was when the crack epidemic started because oh. the white powder was the ritzy thing. But when crack and base came along, which is basically the same thing, except base is purer than crack. Crack has chemicals in it. That's but right. it's basically the, the cocaine. Um, that base was like base and crack with instant addiction you know you do it once twice and like you're always hunting for it you know they, they, they spend, you spend all your money you probably mother's underwear to get the money you, you you sell television you do everything to get the money and they have no Wrong with doing that because it's not them, it's the addiction. Right. But one funny story that I had shared with you is the fact that one time we went to the Dominican Republic and at the airport when we landed, they automatically assumed that Richard was a dealer. And I was the mule. So they figured, okay, well, let's get him because he looks like he's the mule and he'll probably have everything on hand. So they strip searched me. They took me to a room, strip searched me. And naturally, there was nothing to be found. But they were going through Richard's wallet and all of a sudden, Richard was blah, 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 blah. blah. Then he stopped. Dead silence. And they finished doing the search, and they sent us on the way because they didn't find anything. When we were in the cab, Richard told me that the reason why he stopped was he'd seen them flip past a dollar bill, folded up, that had cocaine in it. Now, it was a small amount, but a small amount would get you locked up. For a long time. Yeah, there. you know, and, and the Dominican Republic is no jail you want to be in because I think we're told that your family has to bring you food because otherwise you don't get food. I'm sure they give you bread and water or something minimal. Right. But anyway, that happened. Now, I see you have the list of. Well, because it's because I want you mentioned San Domingo, Dominican Republic. That's Waldo's disco you went to work on. Yes, he's down near the bottom. Mm -hmm. He's the second, third club at the bottom. Village nightclub. 
Waldo's, Zanzibar Studio, St. Regis Hotel, Trinity in Hamburg. My friend played there, Jens Lazat, was the resident there. Tomorrow's, Regine's in New York, Regine's in Montreal, Paris Garage, Larry Levin, Michael Brody. Mm -hmm. New York, New York, Francois K played at. Melons, La Club, La Folly, Infinity, that was, Infinity was Jim Burgess. Mm. Halston's Fashion Salon, of course, that's where Halston did his work. It's yeah. his work, gas station, I don't know that room. Emmanuel, I don't know that room. Emerald City, I know that. Frank Armella played there. Elephist, that's Jimmy U in Queens. Mm -hmm. The Elephist in Hunter Mountain, you have a story to tell us in a moment, you will. Dorian Gray, I played there, I know that room. Disco mm -hmm. Forum. Cameron Clubhouse, Class One City Hall, The Circus, Cessois, Casablanca, The Big Apple, Annabelle's, and the Underground's not in that 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 I played that room too. Richard System, Underground's not in there. That was after that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So you go to work for John Addison. Yeah. What's your responsibilities and duties? Because we learn a lot about you that you have so many different responsibilities. So John well, employs you. What's your job there? Well, basically what I was doing with John is custodial. I was sweeping up. Well, actually I was, I was cleaning, you know, cleaning up the dance, the, the floors because people were throwing stuff on the floors and he had a mess and I was the one he recommended I do the sweeping. So I did that. Okay. Then one time he had to arrange flower arrangements for the lobby, which was like uh, maybe 10 dozen flowers. Uh, I forgot what flowers they were. But I arranged them, and then he said, okay, I want you to do the cotton candy machine, which was like, I couldn't believe how messy cotton candy was. I'm doing the cotton candy and I'm rotating the wand around the, the, the drum. And before I knew it, I had cotton candy up to my elbow. And it's sticky and it's sweating and it's like yucky. And, you know, and everybody's like, oh, Harry, Harry, I want more. Oh, come on, give me some. And I, I hated <laughs> that job. And then he put me on a soda machine. I was giving sodas out. Then he put me on the, the um, oh, what are they called? Uh, the, uh, the little grills. I forgot what they're called. But hibachi? It was, what is it? Hibachi. hibachi grill. Yes, hibachi. Now, you have a club of a 1,000 people, and you have five hibachi grills. Now, tell everybody the demographic of Ice Palace is the people that came there, what was demographic and age of, of well, that crowd? it was really a mixed crowd. And I really didn't put my finger on that because I was just too busy. But it ended up being a lot of, it was almost like an extension of Leisure Dan, but on a larger scale. You had like, you know, white, and you had uh, young, you had older people, it was almost like an experiment gone wild. You know, I had a little bit of everything. You know, but main, mainly we're young kids, you know. Would you say it was more predominantly gay or was it a mixed crowd? At no, it was more straight than anything. Okay. 
you know, but I mean, they were there, you know, but that, it wasn't like affluently gay. It wasn't, uh, but it was mostly straight white kids from like Long Island and maybe New Jersey and stuff like that. Yeah. But John Anderson also owned a club, which didn't last, but it must have lasted maybe two weeks, I think. Uh, it was called The Superstar. And he opened it, and apparently he wasn't paying the right people, and they burnt the club down. <laughs> what goes up? Must come down. Must come down. If you don't and it was a shame because that was it was a beautiful club. I mean, it was huge. It was like it had several layers and like terraces looking over the dance floor, and it was really a wonderful space. But you know how that goes. I think yeah. so. So back in the day, everybody, if you didn't have envelopes ready for your oh your protection. From, and I'm not talking police protection. I'm talking about from the same people that will burn your place down. Yeah, yeah. That's what happens to your, your establishment. Yeah. And it's funny because some of those places were owned by those people. Yeah, I know. And the funny thing was is that when they're owned by those people, you don't mess around with them and you don't try and get off, get over with anything. I remember going to a club and they decided that this person, he did, they didn't want to let him in and he insisted on getting in. They beat him up at the front door, <laughs> threw him out in the street. He's laying out in the street bloody and everybody's walking in, oh, well, stepping over him to get into the club and they're still going to the club. But that's the way it was back then, you know. So how long did you stay with John, John Addison? John Addison was only one summer. Okay. Yeah. It's an experience. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, the reason what made me, okay, what happened, I think a little bit before I left, Fifi, his, his um, partner, got stabbed. And everything sort of went south from there. But um, I had, I left because um, my sister had passed away. So, um, you know, that sort of busted the bubble. So. But then how was, long, going. I was going to say, how long did you stay away from the nightclubbing scene? Because it must have been not too long. Well, no, it wasn't. Well, the thing is, during that time, I was still basically hanging out with Richard. Ah. And with Richard, when I first started hanging out with Richard, it was like he was building his law and he needed a second set of hands. So, you know, I go down and, uh, you know, I'm visiting a uh, guest and He's like, okay, hold this beam while I'm banging I hammer it in. Yeah. I need another set of hands. Help this, huh? And I'm, you know, working and working, and it got to the point where, no, you got to pay me. You know, so he put me on salary, and we put together his loft, and I was the only one that helped him 
to get his walk together. You know, so he did that. I was even living with him at one point, you know, because I was down there all the time. It was a fun place to hang out, you know. And when he had parties, he had all the snacks. You know, us kids love snacks. You know, the M&Ms and the popcorn and the sodas and stuff. So it was a great place to hang out. How much older was he than you guys at the time? I believe Richard was about 10 years older than me. Okay. That's around, around about figure. Because right. he's, I'm hearing, because he's got a lot of experience already, and you guys are really young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I, when I started hanging out with Richard, I was about 15. So he was about 25, 26 already. Yeah, yeah. When do you officially begin to really start to work at RLA, like officially? I would say it was about 74-ish. Oh. That was, that was when he opened up the club. And he had to put me on the payroll for the club. And then, you know, I was doing help with him, with working, getting it together and stuff like that. So maybe 80, maybe 73, I started getting paid from him. And then when um, 74 came, when he opened up the disco, what Richard's intention was is to create a showroom. And he used the club as his showroom. So whenever he had a customer, he'd bring him right to his loft and, you know, let him see what he got. Yeah. Ah. Okay. So he was actually creating what pre garage became his master showroom and a small well, scale. Well, it, 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 the odd thing was is that Larry knew he was good. How did Larry know that? Because Larry comes from, you know, this is all new to everybody. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that. Larry was, before the Continental Baths, Larry was doing house parties in the Bronx. And, you know, everybody would go to the house parties and he would fill the room. He had, he had a, a following. You know, it was small at that time because he only had so many people in the house, but it was popular. And when he went to Continental Baths, he already had his beginning experiences. So then when he came to Richard's, it was like the place exploded because Larry pulled in so many people because Larry's so popular with other people. And he was in, in you know, it was like Larry, Frankie Knuckles, David Mancuso, Nikki Ciano, and all of us were like the little rascals. And we hung out together. We would, you know, go to each other for uh, advice and we'd borrow records from each other and da 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 da. And so Rich Larry was able to gain a following that filled up Rich's place. And so he was able to bring, it's like, okay, Rich, you, I'm playing for you. And, and just the invitations started, every, like, the, 
kind of like the Pied Piper. Play your flute. And yeah, yeah. They're following the Pied Piper, you know. And Larry had that mistake about him. That I do remember. He always had that. Yeah, and the thing was, he filled the room. He when he first started, as soon as he started, the room was full. It didn't like have to build up any. It was just packed, and you know everybody supported and put their uh, contributions in by creating mailing lists and stuff like that. And we would send out twice as many mailing lists as twice as many invitations than the room would hold. But they figured that you know only half of them would come that night. But I know, I know. For example, like. Larry's dream was they all looked up to Mancuso. Yeah, a, well, a, Mancuso was like the leader because everybody looked up to him because he was the pioneer of law parties and private parties. Larry, Larry liked David Mancuso and what David Mancuso represented and did for disco or clubs. I would call it clubs because it wasn't like a disco. It was a private thing. Uh, David Mancuso went to court because they were trying to shut him down because they were saying that he can't have all these people coming to a party or you can't have them coming to a disco or a dance situation without a license. And Larry's thing was, well, I'm having people, I'm having guests coming by, and it's a private party. There was no alcohol being served, so there wasn't any problems with liquor licenses. Right. And he even went to court wearing mismatched socks. And the thing, the funny thing about that was he probably didn't have a pair of socks that matched, but he just wore the mismatched socks and felt comfortable like that. But um, he won his case, and all the other clubs after him, all the other clubs, I say clubs because I don't call them discos, uh, they all had the same ingredients. They had music, they had lighting, they did not serve alcohol. They gave up snacks and food and stuff like that. And it would go like from midnight to sun up, you know. So within the, within the area of loft, gallery, mm -hmm. Soho Place, that's three clubs right near each other, within a few couple, within two or three blocks of each other. They're five blocks from each other. Matter of fact, the gallery was almost right around the corner from right. the wall. Literally up the block. Literally up the block. Yeah. You know, so. And Soho Place was a couple blocks over. Yep. About five blocks. And everybody was busy. Oh, busy, busy, busy. You know, and there was such a what it was like people were fighting to get into these places. And if you and didn't have a membership, if you wasn't invited, you're not getting in. And this is all before Sinai Fever even happened. This is this was yeah. an underground. Yeah. This is underground. And well, beginning. the thing is that those things like Saturday Night Fever, that disco, 
you know, and it was like they tried to burn out disco so much until it became taboo. It was, it was, they, that's when they came out with the, you know, disco is dead because there was just too many clubs. There were people opening up clubs in their bathrooms. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, that's what happens when you get the Burger King mentality, McDonald's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody was open everywhere. The everywhere. You know, the smallest little hole in the wall, they turned into a club. That's right. You know, or a disco, you know. But these private membership spots, because they were all membership, basically, all three spots. The thing about them none of them served alcohol. Disco served alcohol. So they had to have a liquor license, and then they had to close at 4 o'clock, 3 o'clock on Saturdays. You know, you couldn't stay open. If you stayed open all night, the bar had to be shut down, and they don't do that. Because there is no bar. No. So Mancuso's formula became the formula of gallery and Soho Place. Yes. And the rest of them that came, that followed. You had Buttermilk Bottom, you had Reed Street, you had this, you had that. You know? You had, well, Reed Street's where Michael Brody meets Larry LeVan. That's Michael Brody's spot. Well, as I was getting to was the fact that Richard was confronted by Larry. And Larry said, you know, I'm good. I know I'm good. I want to raise. And... What do you Richard mean? His stubborn self said, no, I don't think so. Right? Which is, the, uh, that was the worst thing Richard could have done. Because, you know, when, when Larry left, so did the crowd. <laughs> sure. You know, and after that, Richard was struggling. And it was like, Richard would be able to make it but it would take time to for him to build up the, the club team. Who was Robert? Who took over Larry's position at, at, at Richard's club at Soho? You know, I don't even remember. Because I never heard anybody. I don't know anybody that took over that place. No, I, I don't remember either. I mean, I know there are people that tried to do it. But, you know, there was a DJ, a new DJ a week. And Richard was hunting for the right DJ. But it didn't last that long after Larry left because Richard was having problems with the neighbors, with the noise and the music and stuff like that. You know, his neighbors hated him for the sound. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> this major sound system, which vibrated the whole building, you know, so it didn't really work out. And that's why Richard moved. And Richard moving was a nightmare because he never really found a spot that he could build on mm. to recreate the whole scene again. And then he had some uh, business partners, which were nightmares. There was one who took Richard for a ride. He got a spot that he was going to open a club in. Richard paid for this spot for over a year. And it turned out that his opening a club wasn't allowed. So it was like money thrown down the drain. 
And, um, you know, it's, it's like, then there's the other people that Richard tried to get involved with. They were all jerks. They were all just didn't add up to what he needed. He needed somebody who was devoted to helping him and, and be with him to conquer what he was conquering, you know. And Richard was a sure bet good deal, you know, but people just were not there for him, you know. And that's a tough thing because you're going through money too. And how do you keep the money coming in? And you don't have the parties going. Which then I assume forces him to have to start doing installation work. Is that what happened? Um, well, Richard was doing installation work all through this. But he was getting a better reputation as he went. Uh, about 76, he was really getting uh, word-by-mouth jobs. Uh, and that's when he started winning those awards from Billboard. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in 80, uh, 78 is when the garage won for their club sound system. Larry won for his DJing. Richard won for sound design and installation and on and on and on. Okay. Okay. So that's an important part to this, to this story of Richard Long. Okay. You got, let's go to the year 1977. In 1977, a lot of things happened. Okay. Two major clubs open up the same year in New York City. Okay. One being... Studio 54. Okay. The other one is Paradise Garage. Right. The third part of it is later that year, Saturday Night Fever comes out, but that's not important. What came down? Saturday Night Fever comes out that oh, same year. Oh, that, oh. That's not important for what we're talking about with Richard Long. Just yeah. Richard does both these clubs, studio yeah. and garage. Yes. Yeah. Michael Brody's idea was to have this the wider element of Fire Island as his as his crowd. Yes. Larry Levan being another crazy, let's say crazy queen as she was. Uh-huh. He wanted that system to be perfection because he felt he waited one year to open this room. Well, you know, the thing about Larry is that Larry would it not being said much, Larry was very much into the technical part of sound system. And that's what I want you to explain, that whole thing that happened up into the garage opening and what Larry LeVan was doing, Richard. Okay. Well, Larry was, and Larry and Richard were friends. So no matter what was going on, they were friends. Um, even after, Richard, Larry left Richard. Richard would come by and they would do checking sound systems and whatnot. And Larry would tell Richard what frequency they would have to start the tweeters at because if you go too low, you'll have voices in your tweeters and that's not going to work. And then he was going off of, on lights. He wanted strobe lights would go instant lit and instant out. He didn't want to 
coming on slowly and fading out. He wanted the flash of light. And he was very technical. And he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was talking about. And he even influenced Richard a lot. You know, because they were testing that the pre-garage, you know, because Richard had set up a, a small system for them while they were doing the main floor at the garage because they were having uh, parties where they had sawdust on the floor and ladders in the room. You know, they, they had sound systems on tabletops and things like that. And, um, you know, it, was, it just it just amazed me how the attitude and charisma that Larry had, he would walk into a room, everybody would catch eyes on him, and he would have the confidence, he wouldn't be discouraged, he wouldn't be, you know, bashful, he was just there. And he was like royalty, where he walked into a room and everybody respected him because they knew that the way he carried himself meant something. And it did. You know, I got so much influence from Larry just by the way he acted and, and, and presented himself in, in the public. You well, know, you were so the, the thing is that, as I said, with me, my brother, my brother and I, Frankie Knuckles and Larry, Larry was very much with Frankie while Frankie was going to art and design. I think he was going to, um, oh God, I forgot the school he was going to. FIT? No, uh, Larry. Erasmus High School? Erasmus, yes. Yeah, in Brooklyn, Erasmus, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they hung out together. And the first time I met Larry, I didn't really meet him, but I, I got to see him. He had joined a dance contest. And it was at the sanctuary, not the later sanctuary, the sanctuary before that. I think the it was one, like, the one Francis Grasso played at, the one in the church. Yes, well, I think so. It was on Forty uh, Third Street, I think it was. In the church, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the sanctuary. Yep. Yeah, and um, he joined. He was doing a bump contest with. Um, oh God, I forget the person's name, but they had got it on the floor. And the bump was very popular then, but it was like a very calm dance. I mean, it was like, okay, you bump hips, you turn bump other hips. They were doing acrobatic acts. Larry was throwing this queen up in the air, and they would come down, they would bump, they were swinging behind the legs, and they would grab them, put them up in the air again, and Oh, they performed. It was like something out of a circus act. And that was my first acknowledgement of Frank, uh, Larry. 
you know, because then whenever I ran into him, you know, we would talk and whatnot. And, um, you know, we became friends. And that was, that was actually before Soho Place. So I already knew of Larry before Soho Place. You know. So Larry was floating around the city already. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Then I met Nikki Siano and I started hanging out with Nikki right, right before he moved into the Mercer Street club the second gallery i met him with the first gallery and okay. the funny thing was that when i met him at the first gallery he came running in from wherever and he had this new record he was raving about this record raving about the record oh you wait until you hear this and he played it and i was like oh i don't know <laughs> You know, you don't get it at first, but he knew what he was talking about. It was MFS, MF, oh God, MFSB, Love is a Mess. Here you go. Um, love, love is, uh, Love is the Message. Love is the Message. The first one, it had just came out and he brought it. And I was like, at first, I said, yeah. But he played it like nonstop that night. He must have played it like 10 times. And he said, listen to the orchestra. Listen to this. Listen. And it was funny because he pointed out all of the things that were going over my head. I never thought that I would ever hear a record. When I finally figured out what's going on with that record, it was so wonderful that at last they still play it today. You know, and it's still hot. Oh yeah. You know, so I was like, you know, that made me. I I I got to love Nikki, and we would hang out. We would go to the house. He would have parties at his house, and he was with Robin Gernstein and this and that, and you know, it was just a wonderful. As I said, it was like the Little Rascals. We got together and it was fun, 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 no matter what we did. And the funny thing was also that Larry and Richard had the birthday on the same day. One time we did a birthday party where we had two bands. We filled each other, each, each band up with people. We had food and made all this fried chicken and potato salad and stuff like that, very picnicky. And we went to Action Park. It was in Asbury, in Asbury, in Asbury, New Jersey. Yes. Wow. And um, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure if that's it. They have a a, a drive-through zoo. I think that's Great Adventure. Great Adventure. Okay. Well, it's Great Adventure. We went to Great Adventure. We were driving through the safari. And the monkeys were trying, climbing onto the band. And the only way that we could get it off is we speed up and stop really short. So the monkeys were flying all over the place. And, um, you know, we had so much fun. It, it just so, sounds more like, you know, at the time, even though you're working, 
people don't understand how much everybody was hanging out, just hanging. No, but that's the thing. It's, it, as long as we got the work done, we could hang out while we work, you know, and we could have fun, you know, that working for Richard was like a dream job because, you know, you used to have to take a lunch for two hours, you go for two hours, but you come back and you make it up and you, you try to catch up with your work and you could take the day off and he's okay with that and da da da. One time during the transit strike, I had roller skated from my house, which was by the George Washington Bridge, down to Canal Street. Richard was floored. Look, look at Robert with skates. Yeah. It's Robert. He knows how to skate. Yeah, I, I skated all over the place. I skated in California, New Jersey, Virginia, uh, New York. My favorite place was the Empire Roller Rink in Brooklyn. That's where I learned to skate. My first night at skating, I spent most of my night picking myself up off the floor. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And, uh, I, was in, I was determined to learn, and I did. And that, that was the best place to learn because you had real pro skaters there. They wasn't playing. And they didn't come to fight, or they didn't come lounge around they came to skate and they skated and skated did and you did you actually work on the system of both 54 and garage did you do any work on that at that time were you involved yes, I, did. I did matter of fact the garage the night it was supposed to open it must have been sub zero zero degrees out it was cold. It was frigid. People were lined up outside. They came early. They were lined up in the cold and they were out there. And we were freaking out in the garage because I was on a ladder wiring speakers and there was part of the sound system that didn't get in from the airport. Mm -hmm. So we were hustling and bustling, trying to get themselves to this place together. And finally, the shipment that came in from the airport, there was people waiting for it so they could run it back to the club. Right. But we felt so bad for the people who were out there standing in the freezing cold. And um, But we finally, when the doors opened, at, we were maybe a couple of minutes late from opening from the correct time and it turned out that it was really packed and it was a successful night. That's the console that Richard did. And the thing is that the equipment on the front of the console um, pivoted up and down to get the right angle for Larry to play his music. And that console was the first console that everybody now copies because it was so popular. Yeah. You know, and, um, with the hydraulic motor. Yeah, yeah. Like the yeah. section where the where the where the mixer is, so that it can it could sit wherever forty five degree or ninety degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Larry kept it very ninety degree, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. He didn't like the slope; he liked it flat. 
He liked it like a yeah, tape. well, mostly flat. It had maybe a slight angle on it. Just so, so those Snow Queens were outside angry. Uh huh. And Michael Brody's probably yelling at everybody. When is this? Come on, get the system together. Come on, get it together. Come on, Larry's going crazy. He's like, oh God, where's the sound equipment? Where's the, the soundproofing? We didn't put the soundproofing up because it was just too much. Right. And the room That's was put together without the soundproofing. And actually, the system sounded bad when he first, that first night. It was. Uh, acceptable, but it wasn't up to par. No, because you had to. Code, no, code. you had rushed it. There was no way to get it to sound right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't fine tuned. It didn't have the right uh, acoustical treatment. It was, you know, he had to bring other people in, like he had Al Feierstein come in for the acoustical treatment, which he's the acoustologue. He's a uh, soundproofer. So. And, Robert, to your recollection, system went in first and then the sound absorption was put in later? Yes. Yes. See, people thought that that room was built around the system. Well, well the I, system was built I around don't the room. I, I don't know. I mean, Larry was very instrumental in helping design the room. And Richard was instrumental in filling it with sound. And it, it wasn't like they designed the room around the sound. Uh, they just designed a good room and they had a good sound. And it worked out as a pair, you know. Because I believe what ended up is that the, the whole ceiling was soundproof with uh, fiberglass and then the wall the upper walls were surrounded with fiberglass and it was covered with black cloth to make it look black because he wanted the room to be black which would make it look bigger in the dark right and it did yeah yeah well that was, that was the biggest dance floor i've seen ever. yeah i don't think there's any dance for that size yeah i never never did. that club was a block long a full block. It went from uh, Leonard Street to King Street. I never ever seen a club that big. I'm sure there are, but not as perfected as that was. Because Richard, that was Richard's baby. He treated it like a baby of his and he used it as uh, the sample showroom. If he needed to do a job, he would bring the owner to that club and they would fall out to hear that sound system. And I can't believe that people actually fall asleep in the speakers. They would fall asleep in the speakers. Yeah, and but they're, not, they're pretty big. I'm not sure about that. In, in these speakers he's talking about, this, this particular Bertha. Yeah, because you would have the extension in the front, so you would sit in the front and you you would just you would tap like go like this, crawl, crawl up in there and fall asleep. I can't see how that can happen because that vibration was ridiculous. Oh, oh please, you could whip an egg with it. Yeah, it was crazy. I don't know how you fall asleep. There's like an earthquake coming at you. Yeah, yeah. Double eighteens. Mm, yeah. Vibrating. Oh my yeah. god. 
And then on top of that with the Berthas, I mean the, the uh, Waldorf or the Emeralds. Right. Yeah. Let me see if I got a stack. I got to show the stack here. Here we go. Look. Look how momentous this was, everybody. Yeah, see, those are. Look at that. The Van Horn in the bottom. Right. The ultimate top. Waldorf on top. And then you have the emeralds in the back. Right. Yeah. So and you, you had you had you had four stacks of the birthers with the uh the uh Waldorfs. Then you had emeralds in the middle of the dance floor on either end, on either side. I mean, it was like unbelievable. When the garage first opened, you had he brought those birthdays in that that Richard design, correct? Of course. Was it the the so-called Larry Levan extension? Right. Was that yet made, or that comes later during the club? Well. I don't know. They came close to each other, but I couldn't tell you because it's so long ago. I can't remember, you know, but I know that Larry wanted the Berthas to be called Larry LeVan Horns, but Richard decided to design the extension and then he called it the LeVan Horn, you know, which it wasn't like they called it the Bertha with the LeVan horn with the extension. It was the LeVan speaker. You know, they called it, uh, they, you know, I mean, if you break it down, it was the Bertha with the LeVan horn, but people just say it's a LeVan horn. Yeah, I want that box with the, with the extension on it. Yeah. I mean, that dance floor was no, no joke. Oh, um, no. That dance floor is no joke in no way, you know? Yeah, and that's not even crowded. That just no, that's already late in the morning. People, you know? Yeah. No, Garage was crazy at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. It was nuts getting it, even getting in four there. 4 or 5. You come out of there at 11 o'clock, and you get blinded by the sunlight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, now, nobody's seen this. This is... Off from the dance, so looking up to Larry's booth. Yep. So now, garage happens, and Michael Brody is a little bit upset about what happens the night with the system coming late, and a lot of those people probably didn't want to come back, as the fairy tale has always said. When does studio come together for you guys for RLA? The garage opened first, and then the studio opened. However, the garage sound system was superior. And I mean, they were both superior sound systems, but Larry, the garage should have gotten more of a rave for sound than studio. Um, but commercially, studio was the, the club to mention. And they, they always mentioned the uh, studio because of the crowd it kept. Yes. So, 
it was a, a more affluent crowd, you know, of, of, of celebrities and famous people. Everybody came to studio. You know. Well, that's what happens when the newspapers every week are writing about Halston's there, Burt Reynolds is there, yeah, movie stars. Everybody, there. everybody was there. And then this is the, becomes the front of your club. Wait a minute. Was it? Oh, God, what's her name? Bianca Jagger rode a yes. horse in the studio. And Nikki horse. played that night. Nikki Siano played, yes. Yeah. You know. But Michael Brody did not want from Paris Garage that look. He didn't want any of that. He wanted everything. No, he, he, wanted, he wanted the more down, down to earth people, you know, the. The melting pot, if you want to call it, you know, and unfortunately, with the AIDS epidemic, that's what separated crowds. Because before AIDS, everybody got together, the rich, the poor, the, the wealthy, the black, the white, the Spanish, everybody came together and celebrated together. But the AIDS epidemic broke up crowds and everybody stayed to themselves more or less. It was still mixing, but it was a very, um, you know, tedious and, and cautious. Yeah. From what I remember in the original time when AIDS began, and I could be wrong, they had strange names for it. They called it the grid. They called the gay man's cancer. Ugh. They didn't know what the hell it was. They didn't know why everybody well, was dying. They not as the gay disease. And the gay disease, of course. You know, that was the main thing. And the, be, be, being that it was called that, the medical industry and the leaders in charge didn't take hold to it and make it an emergency, which it was. And people were dropping like flies. You know, you go out one week, you see 10 people, you see 20 people that you knew. You go back the next week, there's five people that you knew. You know, they were, drop, they were dropping so rapidly and you couldn't keep, you couldn't keep count. It was a mess. So much fantastic talent went with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there, there, there's legions of people just dropped off the face of the earth. And, you know, it's almost like the medical industry and the government had a lot to do with that because they weren't paying attention. They just was ignoring it. You know, they were saying, oh, it's a gay disease. Why should we bother? You know, and they were cursing gay people before, for being gay and, you know, but then once it started spreading in the straight world and, you know, affluent people like Mark Hudson, he was the first affluent person that they made a big deal over. And the poster child, basically. He became you know? a poster person for this. Yeah. 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 And people today are still dropping, but it's not as much because finally they came up with the, the medication to sustain people's lives. Yeah, but those original cocktails that they oh. were giving you killed killed more people than saved them. Yeah, yeah, it was hope the hope drug. Let me let me say this to everybody. Um, 
what kind of happened, and I remember experiences seeing it from friends we all knew that passed. Okay. So what would happen is you would be taking drugs through the night, mm -hmm. dancing mm -hmm. at a club, which was a traditional thing in the night underground scene. It could be at any club you were at, okay? And what happens when you're taking those kind of drugs, you're thought process or your gates are wide open. So you're not thinking clear. There's a lot of different drugs going on. There's heroin, there's crack, freebasing. And, and, and another thing was a lot of things were done with IV. So people were sharing needles yeah. at that yeah. time. Also, the sex. the sex was also another part was another problem was no one can and protected themselves and thought about, you know. No. Well, the thing is, in the beginning, they didn't know how it was spread. So people didn't take into consideration what precautions they were to take, you know. And the thing is, once they started finding out, people were still not protecting themselves. And they figured, oh, well, I would never get it. Or, you know, this one, you know, this one looks good, so I know he's not going to have it. And they just take, you know, they take it upon themselves to delve <laughs> into stuff that is more than they can handle. Right. You know? And, and, and then, yeah, of course, and changing partners and everything yeah, like that. Yeah. One gets sick, five others get sick because 10 people get sick, whatever it was at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let, let's look at this, for example. Robert at RLA at the time in the office in Long Island City coming back from Mexico, if I remember what you told me. <laughs> ah, we're going to talk about this funny story. We'll, go, we'll, we'll get a little lighthearted about how crazy the long <laughs> life was. So they go to Mexico to work on a system. And Robert will take it from here. He has to deal with some of the people, kind of like gangsterish. But I'll let yeah. him explain yeah. the story. Well... We went down, we flew down. It was Richard, Frankie, Zaluski, and myself. We were working. We must have been there for, it wasn't even a week, maybe three, four days. We previously put this sound system together, which was shipped down to them in advance. And so all we had to do was hook it up and put it in place. So they had made a deposit on the initial payment of the sound system. And once we finished, it was like, okay, well, we're ready to go home. We're going home for the next day. So all of a sudden, the guy, the owner, had said, oh, I have a car waiting for you. And it was like, okay, we didn't think anything of it. And get in the car, we're riding along the highway, you know, lots of traffic and stuff, lights, and it looked like a normal highway. But then it was like he took a turn off the road, and it was like a dirt road. And it was going up and up and up and up and higher and higher. And it was dark, and all you saw were trees and nothing but just that little path that we were on and it was bumpy and we were rocking in the car and whatnot. So then he stopped in the middle of nowhere. 
and to the right or to the right right side, all we were on was a cliff where all you saw is these little tiny street lights down at the bottom. And the guy got out and he went to talk to somebody else in another car that was waiting for us. We're sitting in the car, freaking out. It's like, oh God, what are they going to do to us? We were freaking out so much because we knew that we were in a foreign country and if they decided to push us off the side of a cliff, nobody would know, nobody would instigate, nobody, it would, it would take while, you know, weeks before they would find us. So apparently the, the two people who were talking outside, they didn't agree to go through with whatever they had to go through. The guy got back in the car and he drove us back to the hotel. Now we're all shook up because we knew what could have happened. So Richard decided, okay, tomorrow I'm going back to the office myself because I'm the most important person, which we agreed. Secondly, I would come back and we left Frankie because he was the muscle. He was big and bulky. You know, strong guy. And so apparently they got wind that we had left and they were like, they started to freak out. They said, oh God, they left Frankie. I mean, what's Frankie going to do? So Frankie went to pick up the money and they were afraid that Frankie was left as a bouncer for Richard. So they happily gave the money to uh, Frankie to bring back to New York. When I was coming back, it was my birthday. And I was just on the plane praying, thank God I'm out of there. I was so shook up. And I had told the passenger next to me, oh, it's my birthday, by the way. She told the stewardess, the stewardess brought me a little bottle of champagne. And they started, a few people around me started singing happy birthday. Before they ended, the whole plane was singing happy birthday to me. And I've just felt so overwhelmed with joy because I survived what could have been my death. One of, one of a few times it happened. Yeah. Well, <laughs> things, you think get very scary sometimes. You know, you're working with these people who think that, you know, it's all about them and they can do what they want to do and they have the money and stuff like that. Another time was when I was doing the job in Hunter Mountain. I was up on a ladder. I must have been up maybe 10 feet on the ladder. And all of a sudden I lost my balance and fell off the ladder. Fortunately, I didn't hurt myself. I got up, I would brush myself off, and then was like, okay. But we realized that on my way down, I accidentally hit their uh, conduit for the uh, wire, for the lights, and it broke. And they were supposed to be inspected the next day. So the boss was saying, 
oh, you broke it, and da da, something happened, we're gonna come get you, and da 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 da. I was like, oh shit, excuse my friends. Turns out we were supposed to go to the house the next day to pick up a payment. While we're driving up to the house, in the backyard, you hear somebody shooting a gun. I'm thinking, oh, they're going to do me away. They're going to shoot me. They're going to kill me and dump me off the edge of the mountain. And I'd be in the snow, and nobody would know what happened to me. I was so afraid. But it turned out that they had passed the license, or passed the inspection, and they left me alone. But, I mean, it could have went the other way. Sure. You know, oh yeah, of course. Could it be things that happen? That you know, one fun thing that I did was one. I was doing. We did uh, uh, Waldo's in Dominican Republic, and Richard left me down there, and I was supposed to come back a week later. I was driven to the airport, but I missed my flight, so I figured I'll just spend the night at the airport. Fortunately, I had my roller skates with me. I spent the whole night skating back and forth in the airport. They had the smoothest marble floors. Oh, wow. You know, so it was like skating on butter. And all of whatever employees, the maintenance people, or whatever who was there for the night, they were all gathered around and they were watching me and I was doing tricks and whatnot. I entertained them. They, they loved it. I was thinking they would stop me because I mean, who, who, who allows people to skate in the airport? But I had the whole floor to myself. That was it. And now I want to get to a very important part that people may not know about. Unfortunately, the drugs and the HIV and all that is taking the, some of the most brightest and powerful people in our game. Mm -hmm. I know you worked alongside Kenny Powers at the time, which yeah. is part of RLA. Gary Stewart comes after Kenny, um, yeah. after Richard. He's not. Yeah. Gary Stewart was another sound designer later, GSA, um, that borrowed a lot of Richard's designs. What exactly happened to the company mm. of, of RLA? Yes. And let me show this RLA pamphlet. The RLA company itself. And like Richard said, I was the most important part to the company, which makes sense. He, he's the designer. It's like Halston when the designer is no longer there. It's very difficult to mm -hmm. put somebody else in the designer's place when no, there's nobody to fit it. So tell us what happened along the way at, to the end of RLA and everything that you know where it led this. The end of Richard was the end of Richard was maybe in about I think it was about November. Richard had been put in the hospital. And it wasn't looking good. 
we had hopes, but it wasn't looking good. Uh, Richard decided to write a will, and he put three people in charge, hoping that we could pull together and get the right people to help us. Uh, uh, 40 percent, 40 percent, and 20 percent. 40 percent went to Kenny and I. 40 each? 40 each, right? 48. And then 20% went to um, Eric Brown, who was a robotics company. So he had his own business, and he wasn't very much involved with the place. But we had moved into his office, and he shared space with us and whatnot. But what happened was is that Kenny decided to take it upon himself to be the ringleader. And I felt that it was unfair because I've been with Richard much longer than Kenny. And um, then, Rich, then Kenny had this wife of his who Richard didn't like. And it turned out that she made me dislike her. Um, because they were dividing up Richard's possessions. And, you know, Kenny sold everything. Richard had valuable books. He had records. He had tapes. He had tapes of Larry, everything. And even so he got rid of everything. And then he sent me to go pick up his car, which I think he did deliberately. I went to pick up the car, and when I got back, he had a safe cracker come in to break in just two safes of Richard's. Everything was gone. The money was gone. Everything was gone. So I was very insulted because I felt, you know, if you're going to do this, we should at least be together when you do it, you know. And then he started the bank account for the new Richard Long under his name. It wasn't two party checks. So I felt, okay, well, he's just totally ignoring me, excluding me. So I'm not able to pull any rank there. So being that I, I basically I devoted my life to Richard because, you know, he was like a father to me. When he was gone, it was like over. Now I'm done. So it turned out Richard loved me so much. And I'm saying like love, not love, love, but you know, just liked me so much. He gave me years before the combination to his safe. And he was in the habit of having thousands and thousands of dollars in the safe. Plus, okay, yeah, I had drugs and he had the other stuff in the safe. But Paraphernalia, of course. Yeah, paraphernalia. But he trusted me that much, you know, and I never went into a safe on and out. If I had, I went into a safe because he sent me, you know, but other than that, I never went into the safe. And I didn't tell anybody, nobody got combination from me. Kenny could have came to me and said, okay, open the safe, but he didn't know that I had the combination. And I wasn't going to tell him. So 
by him breaking into both of Richard's safe and taking all the possessions, not sharing, not even telling me what it was, I felt like he's chipping me. So I stayed with what was the leftover of Richard Long. I stayed there for about maybe a little over a month. And that was it. I, I walked. And from that, well, the thing that really bugged me out was right before Richard passed, Larry was, I mean, Larry, excuse me, Kenny was absent from the company. He was supposed to do sound systems. He was supposed to do checks. He was supposed to go and do work for company, for sound system, for clubs and things. And he wasn't there. He was busy on his boat out in the, whatever, the ocean, whatever. So one day he was sitting at Richard's desk and he's so in tune to what he was doing until he like sort of blacked out everything around him. And he's sitting there preparing some paraphernalia, if you know what I mean. And he was setting himself up to do drugs. And he didn't even see me when I was standing there looking at him. And I just walked away. I said, no, okay, whatever. So what happened was that from that I knew that you know, this place, is, this, this whole company thing is not going to go well because he's on drugs and he thinks he's the power of, of whatever. He thought he would be in total control and he would be the boss and I would be under him. So what made it worse was we arranged to have Richard's funeral. We made the arrangements, everything, everything went well. We made the arrangement to be at um, Wall Street, um, what church? Trinity Church on Wall Street. Okay. And I had the organist play organ music because Richard loved classical music and everything went well. However, when we were sending out invitations, Kenny refused to allow me to send out invitations of, you know, to everybody. He wanted us not to send invitations to potential customers or customers or anything like that. He was trying to act as if Richard didn't pass, you know. In the, in the fear of that you guys may lose more business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can understand that. That I, I can understand in a business sense. I can understand. Yeah, but you do the then, thing you tell us the tacky, then you got to tell us the tacky part, which is oh, not. Wait, 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 wait. For example, which worked my nerves was the fact that people like Alex Rosner, which it's not, it needs to go here or there if you invite him. Right. And I know that Richard and him, would, even though they weren't together, they were competition, they would still talk to each other. But there were so many people that I wanted to send invitations to, which he refused. So when we had the funeral, there wasn't too many people. There was enough people, but there wasn't many people. 
Years later, I found out that he didn't come to the funeral, Kenny. But what he did was had another funeral without telling me. Oh, shit. No and way. Alex was invited to that funeral. And Alex was saying that he didn't understand why there were so few people. You know, so I don't know. I guess, I guess Kenny felt that, oh, well. I'll probably invite my black friends and stuff and it'll be a, a ragamuffin funeral or whatever. I don't know what his thoughts were, but for him to do a second funeral without telling me, it was a slap in the face, you know? And, you know, I, I, I ran into Kenny and I told him that I forgive him but it still eats at me, you know, because I know that things should have went so much different. You want to talk about shady shade? That is as grand <laughs> shade as shade has ever been given on something. It's like midnight. Oh my God. Darkness hovers over that so you know, bad. You know, and then, and, 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 I have to make this clear to everybody. There was no social media to shame anyone back then. There was none of that. No. But whatever went down happened and it was over. Yeah. People, people got screwed left and right in those days. It's not like now you go, I cry and I go on the internet, I make a video and it gets out there. Mm -hmm. That didn't exist back then. Yeah. It's just, you know, and, and 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 the other part of it is. People make their own stories. They think yeah. what, and that story becomes the truth now. And that's not yeah. how it went. Yeah. The story was. But the thing is, to me, is like. That is such yeah, shade. Yeah, I, gotta, I, I gotta make that clear again. Everyone, that is the grandest shade I ever heard, ever, you to know, be talking to somebody. Oh my God. And, you know, I just, I just. You know, and, and the thing that killed me about Kenny was he was a womanizer. And he was always, um, he was always chasing after women and trying to make him look like he was the boy, you know, he's the big Playboy and everybody wanted to be with him and da, 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 da. but he was married and I would take it that his wife didn't know anything about it and you know I could have ratted on him which I should have just just for purpose for no reason even if, even if for no reason I should have at least told his wife that you know you should watch out for him. You know, not to say much, just something like you should watch out for him. He's got a second life. You know, but um, that that's how much respect I had for him. You know, I didn't want to rat on him. You know, but then so after, all this is around the same time, not too far after the garage is closing and everything is coming to an end. Yes. Well, it was like. The end of an era. Completely end of an era. You know, because studio closed. 
a little bit before that. That's right. Studio was already so, closed. Other than, I think the sound factory. That's later. Yeah, that's later. But the thing is, that's the only large club that happened. Oh, except for the tunnel. They were both big clubs. But after that, well, underground was still going. No, underground was still going on in Union Square. Underground Palladium, you guys did Palladium as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the thing is, it wasn't long after that that they closed. Yeah, it was they, one after another. You know, I mean, then there was no big clubs getting done. It was like that whole era died. You know. Well, because the visionaries that ran it are gone. Are gone. So what do you do? Yeah. No visionaries. Yeah. And Nobody's the got the foresight. The, the city was against having clubs anyway. Right. They, they couldn't stand clubs. They, I mean, look yeah. at everybody. Look how grand this the dance floor. I mean, look and look at the stage. This is the closing weekend with Gwen Guthrie playing. Yeah. Right. Look how. I mean. There was not dance floors like that, many in New York after that. No, not packed like that. And the thing and about packed. it was, the thing about it was, is the garage, especially with the garage, that was like home for a lot of people. People would work all week just so they could go to the garage and hang out. And they would hang out and spend the night there and, and it was a place to be. And it saved a lot of people from the riffraff and the street mess that they would get into had they not had that place to go to. You know, it was like a sanctuary for people. They could go and be safe. There was no fighting. There was no no shade. There was everybody just having fun and hanging out. You know. And that was a difficult thing to accomplish. Yeah. And Larry had a multicultural crowd. Yeah. yeah. Multicultural. It was, it was yeah. like uh, the melting pot. That's right. So you leave there. I'm going to tell you about this. And this is another thing um, with Kenny, of course. You know, and this man went on to do seamster work and... You know, he did these these beautiful out. Look at the work he did. For the Costumes. Yeah. Doctor Ruth for the medieval festival. Yep. Bags. Look, you know, yep. Robert's you know very talented. Was it just like he was just a you know working with Richard? No, he I went I, on. I you know, and even while I was working with Richard, I was still doing my own thing on the side. You know, and um, I was doing the one thing that I enjoyed doing was I was working for a wardrobe company for movies, and I did coats for Danny Glover for the movie that he did. I did uh, stuff for Rosie Rosie Perez, Madonna for League of Their Own. Uh, you know, I did Patrick Stewart. I did work with him. I did work with even um, Jerry Stiller. I mean, there's so many people that I met and things, opportunities that I got just by word of mouth, you know? 
I was doing work for this one lady who, you know, she has people working sewing for her because she was in the, the wardrobe business. And she'd given me assignment and she was like, oh God, what are we going to come back with? I came back, she looked at the work and she said, oh my God, your seams are straight. <laughs> As to say, you know, everybody else was screwing up, making crooked seams and stuff. And she was surprised that I, I was really good. My first job in fashion was working for this doll hospital and they were making doll clothes i don't know if you can imagine how tedious it is small. small little tiny clothes and you got these power machines that go zip, zip. you know <laughs> it was driving me crazy i only stayed there for like two weeks i never picked up the check i just left it I said, no, okay. it's just too much i couldn't do it so, you know, as shady as everything was mm -hmm. and as glamorous and also disgusting and debauchery and all that, mm -hmm. would you do it again? Well, you know, it's funny. I wouldn't trade it in for the world. But you know what I came to? I went through a bout of illnesses and I came to the conclusion that at this point in my life, I'm surrendering myself to God. And whether there's a God or not, I need to have something to believe in. And I do believe in God. And I went through such terror of illness until I feel that I'm only here because of him. You know, I had... Uh, PML, which is a brain infection, it paralyzed me. I got most of my movement back. I had three heart attacks, three bouts of cancer, a fractured hip, one leg is partially paralyzed. I'm diabetic. My doctors said that I had um, Parkinson's disease, which I don't believe. There was a point where I was shaking. My hands would shake. And they automatically tell, oh, it's Parkinson's disease. And I was like, oh, God. You know, with everything else, this is all I need. But the amazing thing, along with me having being positive, the amazing thing is I'm still here. You know, and I feel that it's only by the will of God that I'm here. And I decided that that's where I'm heading now. You know, I had I had my childish ways and did my childish things, but now I'm grown up and I have to do a grown up thing now. So all of that other stuff is behind me. And, you know, I, if I if I were to do something as far as doing it again, no, I wouldn't do it again. But I would want to do God's work. I want to um, better myself and make it possible for me to go to a place like heaven if, if it's that. 
you know, and I do believe that. And in this day and age, with the way things are going on, you need to have something that you believe in. Otherwise, you just go crazy or you, you join the crowd and be all screwed up. On that note, yeah. we, wish you, we love you. We wish you, you know, you're a testament. You're still here. You were here to tell this story. You're definitely yeah. still here left to tell it. There's not many to tell that story this way. No. no. You know? You know, I feel that my testimony is valid and very on point that it, by the strength of God that I'm still here. Because so many of my friends, I mean, there were hundreds, not hundreds, but you know, I knew so many people had died from the AIDS virus, from natural causes, from illnesses and stuff like that. It's like, it just behooves me when I hear people 10 years younger than me dying. It's like, how is that possible? Mm. You know, and now that I'm here, my question is, is how did I get here? <laughs> and why? You know, and not why? only, go on, what? And why? And, and why? But the thing that really gets me is the fact that, you know, I don't know how I got here because there was nobody before me for me to follow. Right. You know, everybody died in their 30s, 40s, 20s. You know, I don't have anybody from back then that lived to be 60. And here I am, 69. Well, Miss Nikki Seattle's still alive. She's 60. Yes, yes, yes. And I praise her. That and uh, Kaborkian. Francois still yeah. going strong. Hang on. Yeah. And also, yeah. this, this and, one. And Kenny, Kenny uh, Carpenter. I'm looking for his picture. There is my friend Kenny. Oh my God, I'm looking. Sorry, everyone. Hang on. I mean, look at Kenny Carpenter. Yeah. Kenny, yeah. Well, Mike Stone's no longer with us, but Kenny Carpenter is still going. Right. Yeah. So there's, you know, there is some people that defied gravity and kept it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, fortunately, there were people that took hold to the precaution bit, you know, and then they stuck with it and managed to get through it. But, you know, I'm just surprised that I'm still here when, you know, okay, let's put it this way. I've been positive for more than 30 years. I can't understand that because people died a year, two years after them finding out, you know? So I'm amazed with that. Maybe it's luck. No, it's not luck. It's by the strength of God. That's what I'm saying. Maybe it's just one of those things that you were just blessed to have. Well, unfortunately, the medication that was very... Well, that's different. another thing. The medication definitely yeah. helped. Yeah. But that early medication, I talked but to even, my even, even with the medication, we're talking about three heart attacks and three bouts of cancer. 
I mean, that had nothing to do with the medication. Or no. The no, it has nothing to do. And you, and you still kicked it in the ass. Yeah. And you still hear yeah. it talk about it. Well, as my cousin would say, I'm still kicking, but not high. Yeah. One thing is, people thought when Richard died, there was millions of dollars around. Yeah. yeah. Was it, huh? Well, you know, I'm sure there was a substantial amount of money, but with what Kenny did, we would never know. You know? I'm sure there was thousands of dollars because, I mean, not only did he get Richard safe, two safes in his house, but he also got his bank account. And right. who knows what was going on there. And he wouldn't let me know. He had his mother to come to, to do bookkeeping. Oh, yeah. What does she know about bookkeeping? But any, the point is that he just kept everything to himself, and he wasn't a... Curtis was employed at that time when Richard passed, and it must have been not more than a week after Richard leaving that he fired Curtis. <laughs> I mean, Curtis was the man who made the speaker. How are you going to get rid of him? You don't. Curtis, Fort, Curtis Forte, right? Yes, Curtis Forte. I don't think Curtis is with us anymore. He passed. No, he passed a couple of years after. Because I know Steve Dash employed him to help with the sound factory system. Yeah, 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 yeah. Curtis yeah. built the quad boxes yeah. at Sound Factory. Yeah, I think it was shortly after the sound factory that he passed. Yeah, because Curtis did that. He was working at for Phil Smith and, and Steve Phil yeah, 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 yeah. Steve Dash. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank God you're here and good luck to you. Of course, we're fans of the RLA sound. Yes. And fans of you, of course. And we can only wish you the best endeavors on this journey that God has given you to the last part of our lives to, you know, make the best of our lives, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And um, everyone, you have to understand something with this type of situation that Robert's in, being partially paralyzed has made him homebound. And it's yeah. not easy for him to to maneuver around. So that's why you're not seeing him out there. But yes. he's still going strong. Send him your messages on Facebook. He'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you have questions about RLA, if anyone knows those answers, is Robert Coleman. Thanks again, everyone around the world, for tuning into True House Stories. And next week, we take it down to Jersey with Roland Clark coming on. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for being here. And I thank you all, and he thanks you, and Robert, thank you graciously for your time. Yeah. Um, we can't ask for anything better than this. This is history in the making. You gave us some inside treats that's wonderful about a, a, a very important figure in the disco or in house music and disco. Because yeah. yeah. that system... Those systems, a lot of house music was played on it. Yeah. A lot yeah. of house music was played on, on Richard Long systems. I know. Yeah. Because that was the 80s. And 
you know, the 70s was the disco era and the 80s became the electronic era. Yeah. Everyone, keep on tuning in and we'll see you all next week. Happy holidays. Stay with me. Bye.